First they think you're crazy, then they fight you, and then all of a sudden you change the world. Health and biotech news, a tech bro or sis would find kind of interesting. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey. On the advice of counsel, I will not be giving an opening statement. Of the entire human genome. All right, guys, so a bit of a controversial one this week. David Sinclair, the father of longevity and Adam's hero, has on Twitter released... Can, can, new- we, can we redo that? Don't call him my hero. <laughs> <laughs> Is he not? Okay, okay. So David Sinclair has on Twitter released a new paper showing that it might be possible to create a pill which can reverse aging. A tweet that actually Elon Musk took interest in. Uh, Before I give a quick summary of the paper, Adam, thumbs up or thumbs down for this research? I think thumbs down, more hype than anything. Okay, fair enough. So let me just summarize 10,000 words in a PDF into about three lines. So they took six compounds which could potentially be made into a therapeutic, a drug one day, and they applied them to human and my cells. And he has this theory called the information theory of aging, where he basically says that as we get older, our cells are almost like a CD with music on it. And as you have that for more and more time, you develop scratches on the CD and eventually it stops working. That's exactly what happens to our cells as they age. And what he's shown is that these six compounds might be able to get rid of these scratches in our cells, in our DNA, and make our cells into acting more like younger cells. So not like these age cells, which then lead to disease, etc. So he tweeted this out, Elon Musk took interest, but then a lot of other people like Dr. Charles Brenner have criticized this again, saying it's more hype than substance. I mean, Adam, what's the what's the anti take on this? Why is this not as promising as it sounds? No, so why it is promising is that he's promising a chemical way we're using small molecules, basically a pill that you can ingest that will have a similar effect to a previous uh, study that he showed where they used uh, kind of a very complex uh, genetic editing mechanism to produce the same effect. So basically, this is what they're, they're promising is that uh, we, we now have small molecules that can induce and reverse um, some aging characteristics. Now the the claims that they use in the in the in the paper are quite um, big. Like they say, reprogram cells to a younger state. There's another um, researcher called Dr. Charles Brenner. He's uh, he's kind of becoming the anti Sinclair. Uh, he's a, a researcher in this field, and he uh, has like very harsh criticisms towards Sinclair. Let me let me read out his his his, um, his tweet. He said that this is pitched as a groundbreaking study. The first chemical approach to reprogram cells in a younger state. Uh, this research has actually been going on for 10 to 15 years, so there's nothing groundbreaking here. He basically says, in brief, David is publishing other people's compounds to do chemical reprogramming. He did not test whether these compounds change cellular identity, yet he is claiming groundbreaking results in this paper. Pretty pretty heavy takedown. <laughs> yeah. yeah in, scientific, he, he's basically... in, scientific, in scientific playgrounds, that's like... A... That's like a heavy insult. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, basically what he's saying is that Sinclair is, is uh, kind of re-describing phenomenon, uh, phenomena that we already know existed and repackaging it as this uh, kind of uh, reprogramming, cellular reprogramming to a younger state by measuring specific markers of, of uh, biological age. The other criticisms were that the journal they published this in is Impact Factor 5, you could say it's a no-name journal. It's 
also been peer reviewed in two weeks. He's a co-editor of the journal, I believe, as well. That's a bit unusual, right? A paper would you would expect a paper like this to take many months to peer review properly. Yes, absolutely. Which is a bit suspicious. And David Sinclair said, Well, look, you know, this was really groundbreaking research. I wanted to be the first to publish it. That's why I published it in this journal and not like a more reputable journal. And they just acted quickly because they knew it was so groundbreaking. But he, he's had similar kind of um, questionable <laughs> ways of publishing before. So in his book, he announced results of research that he has, ha- hadn't published in, in scientific journals yet, right? So this, uh, Charles Brenner talks about this as well. He, uh, he says that this kind of preempts or uh, puts pressure on editors and peer reviewers to approve uh, the results because he's already announced the results in his in his very publicized book. Um, so you know his publishing practices are a bit questionable. The science he's basing this off of is actually legitimate. I mean Yamanaka won the 2006 Nobel Prize in Medicine based on this, showing that there's these things called Yamanaka factors. If you adjust them, you can effectively turn older cells into younger cells, and that could be used to cure disease and, in some ways, reverse aging. So there is some promising stuff there but he does overhype what he claims right i i think the the bull case here is that this is probably one of the only um known ideas that can potentially lead to serious life extension so everything uh, every intervention that we're that other uh, than exercise and stopping smoking <laughs> and sleeping a bit yeah more. yeah yeah i mean you uh, can... there's a list of eight there's like eight things <laughs> i saw in a news article recently <laughs> but this is the only thing that can extend your life no but we're, we're talking about like actual like uh, interventions actual life interventions, extension right. <laughs> yeah so for example like uh, rapamycin, your, uh, rapamycin is a compound <laughs> rapamycin is a compound that has been shown to extend lifespan in yeah. mice right sorry it can help having a dick but, but yeah he, he, but like even rapamycin um, calorie restriction these kind of uh, very robust findings won't lead to radical life extension will lead to something that is like radical and uh, cellular reprogramming is one of the proposed mechanisms to that's do that, if, if it works. That's if you don't, that's if you don't um, poison yourself uh, yeah. with rapamycin the problem is or it, it produces die from social cancer. isolation because every time you go to a party, all you can talk about is your bloody rapamycin and nobody wants to be your friend. <laughs> no, the problem is that cellular reprogramming in reality leads to teratomas, it leads to cancer for uh, cancer cells, and this is a huge problem that they haven't been able to... Um, to I mean, find a solution for. I mean, D- David Sinclair is like, who am I? I'm like a nobody in the world of science, right? But um, some people might say that he is one of the main promoters of this uh, elixir of uh, use or this kind of anti-aging um, paradigm that we will actually be able to develop these types of drugs. And he obviously has kind of cast himself in the role as the spokesperson, one of the spokespeople for that for that movement. Secondly, he does have a history, as you say, of like uh, maybe over-exaggerating or extrapolating or making questionable uh, contributions to the scientific evidence. If you look, I mean, for people who are bona fide scientists will read through, see through what you just mentioned there about him being the editor of the journal and the peer review being uh, rushed through within two weeks. They'll see that and they'll ask the obvious questions about like the, um, in, the neutrality of that process. And the third thing is that he also has a history of like profiting very, very handsomely from claims and potential compounds and companies that are in this space. I mean, you talked about Italy Health before. There was another molecule that he sold, I think, to GSK for a huge sum. It was a 
activator. No, it wasn't yeah. Res Virtual. It was a yeah. It was one of these Sir Two activators. So, so he has he has basically um, personally profited huge, huge sums of money from um, the impact and the marketing and the the business that he's been able to build off the back of this scientific work. Some people might think that we're being like very, very salty and um, skeptical about him, but I think there's like legitimate reasons that are not like not too cynical or like conspiracy or anything like that uh, to be just very, very skeptical of the claims coming out of his laboratory. Oh, and we're basing this on the claims of other scientists who are as accomplished yeah. as him. So, uh, I mean, we're, we're not maybe not coming as rich. up with anything new here. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I honestly think there is a bit of a like jealousy factor in these discussions because he is a, a successful um, you know, researcher who has become very rich and famous. So, I mean, he's going to have some people <laughs> digging at his heels. The company he co-founded with Adam Newman, the disgraced founder of WeWork, is called Life Biosciences. And I think from what I can tell, they've basically done a play where they bought up all the IP, all the intellectual property. He co-founded a company with Adam Newman. Yes, this is a little known fact. It gets it gets better. Adam. <laughs> it gets better. Just when he thought, just when he thought, like the David Sinclair story could not get more like surprising. He starts a company with uh, Adam Newman. The only way you could have more grifters is if Adam was a co-founder as well. <laughs> um, so yeah, he co-founded this. And interestingly, Adam Newman's name has been taken off the website as a co-founder now. But there are the original articles do confirm that he was a co-founder. Um, they've raised over $200 million and they've done this play where they've gone in and, well, I mean, Sinclair says, we've undertaken a big land grab of longevity-related IP and we've pulled together a lot of the world's leading longevity scientists. So, Imran, I know you have a lot of experience dealing with pharma and I know next to nothing, but is this like a typical or is this like a, a good way of doing things when you have a lot of basic science that looks promising and you go and start a company, you raise a lot of money from private investors, and you buy any intellectual property that looks promising, and then presumably you run the clinical trials or the further research needed to cement that. Is that like a normal thing? Is that a good idea, do you think? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a pretty standard. Yeah, that's a pretty standard model. Um, I think a few years ago, there was like a tipping point where actually uh, the majority now of um, drugs that are commercialized by pharmaceutical companies don't actually have their genesis inside the pharmaceutical company's own R&D uh, R&D laboratories but they're actually acquisitions um, or their investments that are made like relatively early on in small biotech companies they could be university spinouts um, they could be uh, incubated uh, by venture capital firms which is a thing that that many of them do um, and then those those drugs get basically bought in at some point when they cross the threshold of evidence or how promising they are they can sometimes be acquired and then further developed because what pharmaceutical companies are particularly good at is um, taking drugs through um, licensing and reimbursement. It's an incredibly complicated thing to do because you have to assemble these like big dossiers of data and information or health economics uh, modeling, um, clinical trial data, etc. It actually starts far before that. The dossier is just like the final step of that process. Um, and then when you get that signed off, then your medicine is basically hits the market, right? So back to your back to your question, is that like something that these companies would do. Yeah, it's a very standard thing for them to do. In fact, uh, pharma companies are, are like quite expensive at developing R&D drugs compared to a biotech, which can be run a lot more lean, maybe with a very small team. Uh, oftentimes, they'll use lots of outsourced services from other companies in the ecosystem. So even the biotech is kind of outsourcing a lot of its work. 
So pharma companies outsourcing to biotechs and biotechs outsourcing to mm -hmm. contract research and development organizations, for example. Is this a weird state of affairs where, okay, I've got that this is a standard operating uh, procedure, but is it strange for a biotech startup to raise money from private investors? So not like biotech VCs, not specialists, but just like family offices and rich people interested in longevity and then use that to buy up compounds. Is that is that a normal thing? I think it does happen, but I think anywhere, anytime where you have like a relatively, oh, I'm going to call them unsophisticated. I don't mean that to be like unkind, but you have like an unsophisticated investor and most family offices or ultra high net worths are what you would call unsophisticated investors in these types of fields. Maybe they won't have the same structured diligence process. Maybe they won't have the same types of deep uh, operating or scientific expertise within their core team. They'll be outsourcing some of that. In some cases, they won't even be doing that. They'll just be investing, you know, like uh, on the basis of like a vision or something like that. I'm sure there are ultra high net worths that make, you know, relatively undiligenced investments from time to time. So um, the thing about a venture capital firm, like a professional venture capital firm that's raising from, you know, traditional LPs like pension funds or um, or the like, is that they'll have to make a case to the people they're raising their money from why they're good stewards of that money. Family offices don't have to do that because they're investing the money of the family, of the family business or wherever it is that their source of funds is. So there's generally less less scrutiny. I would expect like the diligence to be a bit you know thinner. And it could be a sign that somebody's basically trying to hoodwink somebody with a lot of money out of cash. Um, you do certainly see that sometimes in the startup world where some people will say, oh, we're just like too ambitious and we don't want to waste our time with VCs because they're like small minded and they want to see like <laughs> things like unit economics as if that's unfashionable. Um, so I have heard people say things like that. But for me, it always like it's a bit of a red flag if somebody's just raising from what I would consider uh, unsophisticated investors. That's a really good point, because I remember in his other company, TallyHealth, he also did the same thing. He, he raised uh, quite a lot of money from mostly celebrities and people uh -huh. high net worth individuals and he didn't get any money from VCs. So he seems to be using his star power and his uh, charisma um, to fund his companies from maybe less sophisticated investors. Yeah, what most people don't realize it, but is that, you know, in the fundraising journey, like the way that people make money is very, I would say, non-transparent. So I'll give you an example. A lot of people who are standing on the sidelines looking at venture-backed companies that haven't gone public, haven't been acquired, and they see the founders just like raising money and kind of grafting in the trenches, what they don't realize is that sometimes those founders will actually cash out a lot earlier than anybody else, even when the company is still relatively, you know, has like a long way to go. So a classic example, I think, is like a secondary sale of equity. So the founder would sell some of their own equity in a fundraise. Usually what happens in um, a venture round is that the company actually creates out of thin air new equity, new shares. And that's what causes something called dilution, which is that, you know, when you make the pie bigger, everybody's size, uh, slice of the pie becomes like, you know, in relative terms, becomes a smaller piece of the overall pie. So that's dilution. But what some founders will do is they'll actually take part of their slice and they'll sell it to an investor because the investor just wants equity, right? So either it's new equity or it's existing equity. Um, so founders can cash out really early. And so you can have a misalignment of incentives, right? So some of these people who are founding, they'll cut deals. And I see, saw so this, there was a company called um, Sensine Health in the UK, as an example. When that company uh, IPO'd in the UK, my understanding is that some of the leadership team actually took seven-figure bonuses just because they floated the company on the stock exchange. The company wasn't profitable. The company actually has 
I think is ultimately shut down now. Um, but people basically paid themselves in the company huge bonuses for just going through this fundraising milestone. Um, and a lot of, you know, retail investors who invested in that company are left holding the bag. Another example is that, you know, with uh, in, even institutional investors, even like whether you're a family office or you're a fund, you can actually buy into an investment early in its life and sell out later in much the same way to other investors when the company hasn't actually proven that it's ultimately successful, the product ultimately works. So people are... So this I is guess the greater, wanna, greater fool theory. Yeah, like I don't want to sound like cynical, but like you have to look at these things as like, it, um, it's not necessarily always validation that people believe that this company will make it all the way with a real product that's going to hit the market and change the world. People could also just tactically be looking at these companies as like interesting investment opportunities where, as you said, there's like a greater fool type opportunity. Especially Which during it, the previous bull market. Yeah, absolutely. Why aren't big pharma... Companies like, I know you mentioned the GSK had acquired a compound, but why aren't companies like uh, AstraZeneca, Merck, Eli Lilly, they don't seem to be doing much in anti-aging or is there stuff going on in the background? Adam, do you know anything about this? Or is there a reason why they seemingly aren't taking much interest in anti-aging research? Well, I think because there's just so much to be done in specific diseases. And as Imran said, reimbursement is uh, is what they're looking for. And if you yeah, target specific diseases, it's just a bigger market and it's a more defined market. The research uh, avenues and the, the clinical trial avenues are all designed for specific endpoints that are uh, very specific diseases. Um, same goes for uh, distribution. Uh, but uh, there are some companies now, like seriously, and backed by a lot of money that are trying to make anti-aging a market. I think that the... A huge part of what pharma companies will be looking at when they are... Um, I, so first thing to say is I actually don't have great visibility on the pipeline of what you might call like, you know, longevity medications within pharma. It's not something that I track. Um, I haven't seen any data on that. Um, but certainly when you look at like most pharma companies' pipelines, they're looking, as Adam said, at much more tangible near-term things like cardiovascular diseases, obesity, um, neuroscience, mental health, cancer, etc. And the the reason is that when you think about the market for drugs, for longevity medications, I mean, in a sense, every medication is a longevity medication. But I think here, like what we're talking about is like deliberate life extension for um, people who are suffering like the non-specific, um, you know, cluster of like a health degradation, which you might call aging, right? There's a combination of different things. There might be specific, it's actually interesting, what is the taxonomy of anti-aging? Because there might be organ-specific or you might include um, some of existing drugs in that bucket as well. But uh, I think we know what we're talking about for the purpose of this conversation. The market is not there yet. There isn't a market if you look at um, public payers, like governments that pay for medications, or you look at insurance companies that pay for medications in general for health, for healthcare, there is not a well-defined market or appetite that we see for people who will take elderly people in their 70s, 80s, 90s and will spend significant sums of money, which is what will be needed because these people probably won't live. I don't know how much you're going to extend their lives, but you're not going to have like it's a cardiovascular drug or diabetes drug. We have the patient for 50 years. You're not going to have like a patient taking these things for like decades and decades. Um, so the market is not there. The payers are not used to paying for these things. They have other competing priorities. It's not clear how long the, the patients will be customers, if I can just describe them in that way from a pharma company's point of view. 
Um, so it's just, it's totally immature. It's totally undeveloped. It's the pastime of basically um, extremely wealthy people who have the time, the resources, and the, including the money to spend and invest on potentially high cost drugs. Obviously, but maybe we would... if you define it as that, but I, I think it's just because we we can't measure, um, you know, aging or life extension. Um, but that's where it is today. The, that, the that's points... what I'm saying. Yeah, I know, but the, the endpoints that we talk about are, you know, onset of cardiac, uh, of heart disease, of uh, metabolic dysfunction. These are hard hard endpoints that you can ma- measure, and these are actually longevity medications. That's what real medica- uh, real longevity is. It's prevention of age-related diseases. Um, so I think it's just a definition issue. I, I mean, think, I think, yeah. what, you could say that um, weight loss medications are longevity medications. These people don't have acute medical issues or like, someone who's overweight doesn't necessarily have a medical disease right but i think there are like you know the 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 whole like market thing is also like an access question right so who would actually have access to these medications would they have to pay out of pocket um is it just going to be something like you know something that the extremely wealthy use um to give themselves a biological advantage and then i think also at some point like i also see this as sitting a bit on the spectrum around health augmentation. Uh, so like anti-aging, when does that become, if you take an example from sports, when does like your anti-cardiovascular disease or pro-cardiac health longevity medication become doping as we would define it today? I don't know. Because you could, in theory, make somebody, like if you could engineer a healthier heart. Imran, with uh, all due respect, these d- are ridiculous Doping is points. just an issue. Yeah. <laughs> huh? I mean, doping is just an issue in competition. If, if no, doping know, makes I'm... you healthier my point is the framing my point is the framing around superhuman health right that's why doping is a problem so where does longevity medication start to become something a bit different i mean someone like lance armstrong had testicular cancer and then went on to win the tour de france he lived uh he he still lives and he's he's very healthy he's been doping his whole life uh, I think there's, you know, the knowledge, specific knowledge there that we that actually hasn't been studied. This is a point that, um, what's the guy from the network state called? But Balaji Srinivasan. Yeah, he made this point, which I thought was pretty good. <laughs> it's like, um, what if uh, you know this hidden knowledge in in the in the doping sphere? Wait, Adam, just is this it's a, illegal, a fresh that can actually be used you? for longevity? <laughs> Is this a fresh conspiracy that the secret medical knowledge that these dopers are using that could enhance your lifespan? I mean, no, it's not a conspiracy. It's true. <laughs> but like what? Combinations of uh, of hormones, of, uh, I don't know, Increasing muscle strategies. mass. Yeah, I mean, like increasing your lung capacity, increasing your VO2 max. Like all of these things are probably like, you know, good for your health or fighting disease or infections. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. Guys, you know this quote, which is like, cynics are right, but optimists get rich. And I just wonder if are we, when we are critical yeah, it's of It's very relevant like, to the David Sinclair conversation. <laughs> yeah, it actually is. But when we're critical <laughs> of people like Sinclair, are we actually feel like we're, you know, very correct and scientific about everything, but we would actually miss out on the big moonshot opportunities? Um, yeah. Do, do you think we're kind of being a bit too cynical there? We've seen other initiatives from people like in the Web3 space with things like VitaDAO, where people start... Uh, decentralized autonomous organizations to fund some of these more moonshot opportunities. We're seeing, of course, these biotech firms funded by private investors. 
there are some people who are betting on these big moonshots that the traditional um, sphere aren't interested in. Do you think there's a potential yet yeah, that we're overlooking this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we don't have a choice. We have to be uh, optimists here and we have to be naive optimists because otherwise we're doomed. <laughs> is this where you show your longevity startup, Ed? <laughs> yeah, this is very relevant. We do evidence-based <laughs> interventions. Thank you very much. So what's the, what's the question? Like, should somebody be bankrolling this? The question is that do... All, does all innovation at the time seem ridiculous? Are we looking at the Wright brothers and saying you'll never fly when, you know, are, are all great innovators seen like quacks like Sinclair? Oh, yeah. So what we mustn't do is throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think the question here is, is this announcement from David Sinclair going to be the thing that flies? And that is a very different question to, is somebody going to build a sound machine that can fly. The problem with um, this particular instance, I think, is the like sketchiness around how the data was published, issues with the data itself, the Charles Brenner tweet, as an example. The aside from scientific validation, the lack of like financial and due diligence validation because of like ultra high net worth family office, uh, non sophisticated type investors backing the company. So I think what we're what we're doing here is we're saying, uh, I don't think we're saying um, is someone going to come up with drugs that remodel the heart after a heart attack that um, you know uh, increase plasticity in the brain in the aging brain um, that increase muscle mass in the elderly to prevent them from having falls that strengthen your bones etc cetera, etc cetera. that is all going to happen I'm sure it's going to happen right people are learning and decoding the you know, the building blocks of life. Do we think that the first person to come out with evidence of a anti-aging drug, they will be responsible for the most valuable therapeutic ever made? Do you think that's likely? Because the, the contenders could be actually hair loss. I think I think whoever, yeah. whoever cures hair loss is going to... Because, you know... What, I, 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 I don't think part. it's going to be like one medication that <laughs> no, would extend lifespan. No, we're pretty good. We're no pretty problems good. with hair loss around here. <laughs> yeah. I could do with a bit more hair loss. So no, but... yeah, I mean the pro the thing about like uh, life extension is I think it has like theoretically there's like an unlimited um, willingness to pay, depending on how long you extend someone's life. But also if you just look at what people will do to give themselves like small increments in life. So if you if you develop a drug that gives people meaningful life extension, I mean just look at what people are willing to pay today for like some of these cancer medications that give you three to six months. If if you find someone at the margin of their life and you say yeah. like how much would you pay for another month? Like so many people would just throw everything at that. But I think that's important. You find them at the margin of their life in their acute need because similarly, you can make a very good argument that giving someone a statin might increase their life by, I don't know, 12 months overall on average, something like that. And most people who have prescribed statins or 50% of them won't take them. So I do wonder if you did make an anti-aging drug that you know you need to take every day from the age of 40 and it adds a few years on. I actually think someone would Potentially, well, I would, you know, be more likely to take the hair loss drug. Like, I, I care about how I look right now. So I, I do yeah, want that's to, a really interesting to point. frame it. Yeah. I love that point. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, um, that's that, a cynical, similar point but... can be made in reverse when it comes to things like um, hormone replacement, or especially in people who don't have hormone deficiencies. So testosterone replacement therapy is becoming quite popular, even in people who don't have acute um testosterone deficiency mm. and the i mean the evidence is still not clear but it might increase 
kind of things like prostate cancer. Uh, there might be a short cardiovascular gain. Effects. Yeah, uh, cardiovascular issues as well, long term. Uh, so there might be a short term gain in health and quality of life, but you're probably trading um, long term gains. So Adam, if someone's listening to this and they want to turn to our <laughs> esteemed longevity doctor and they're like, look, this space is full of grifters. This is full of people overhyping claims, but I want to get to some good resources, whether that's like good blogs, good YouTube channels, um, or just good people to follow. Like who springs to mind or where can people find legit information on longevity? Does it exist? I think uh, Peter Atia's approach is yeah. grounded in science and uh, my preferred approach. He very much focuses on like primary prevention of main the main diseases of aging. He focuses a lot on fitness and functional fitness. Fair enough. I, I sent out outlive his his new book. I sent a copy, a free copy, to all our clients. So you sent four copies out last month. <laughs> <laughs> out. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Um, anything else? Dodgy downloaded PDFs from Z, <laughs> Z, Z Library. <laughs> Signed right. Adam Batena. You can't have Peter Atiyah, but you can have another Arab doctor. <laughs> shall we? Sorry. Shall I go to some feedback or anything else? Me? Yeah. Overall, our last episode on Nico Health got really, really good feedback. I mean, we were reached out to by people working in Nico Health saying, "Good job," which is always a bad sign because it means we've been too soft and too <laughs> too positive. But there we go. Um, got a comment from Esh saying, great episode, but Adam ruined it by plugging his startup too many times. <laughs> it's just fair enough. Um, comment from Mark Cox on point as per. And um, then we also got a comment from Lawrence Adams because we've missed like two or three weeks of episodes now saying when is big picture news coming back? Uh, oh, wow. We are back and more consistent than ever. Small hiatus. We're back. We don't know if we're back you yet. You better believe it. <laughs> this yeah. is just we're one back. one episode. But yeah, we do need to sort this out. Uh it's it's tricky because it's it's hard to fit in, right? For especially for you guys become busier with different things. Uh but I think I overall think it's actually better to be less consistent and just come out when there's something to say. I think I'm not sure about this method of just turning up every week no matter what, even if there's no good news or even if you don't have the time to prep properly. I don't know if I agree with it. Uh I think it's better to push yourself and like, <laughs> y- you come up with something interesting at, at oh really spot. Adam yeah. yet to see that work ethic from you fair <laughs> Adam, just for context Adam does like zero prep <laughs> sometimes we've had episodes where he will start going off on a like essay about a topic and you'll be like Adam did you read the article that we're talking about you're talking about the complete wrong thing and we'll course correct but that never makes it past the edit but no, you, you always come it shows, Which is it why shows. he pivots to talking about his startup. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. Adam, you're very d- um, popular. I, I don't know much about this topic, I have to confess. So I don't feel like I have a great deal to add on longevity. I think um, I'm actually wondering why that is. I do think about health and longevity, but I think about it in the frame, mostly personally, in the frame of modifiable lifestyle factors. And, um, you know, exercise, sleep, Mm. um, relationships and uh, diet and all of those things. Um, I think that there's, it's interesting how enthusiastically a segment of the population is taken to like pharmacological intervention. Um, I think that's actually quite um, 
uh, I think that's actually quite a big leap um, for me personally. But yeah, I look well, forward to learning more about it. It's interesting because often these people are some of the same people who hate statins and vaccines, but they are really, really pro-experimental <laughs> therapeutics like yeah, rapamycin and off-label metformin, etc., which is really interesting. Uh, it's uh, it's it's more of a tribe or you cynically say a cult than I think evidence-based in a lot of cases. Is it to do, do you think it could be to do with like how they see, who they see as like benefiting and making money out of like vaccines? And because mm. I think like Big Pharma, someone was saying to me the other day that Big Pharma in the pandemic uh, for a period was like trending quite high on trust ratings. Like people had changed their opinion. And in the UK, we had AstraZeneca um, partner with Oxford University to create a vaccine and very publicly do so and also to say that they were not going to make any profit from it at least for some period like that wasn't mm. the intention there but then actually now I think it's actually gone the other way we should actually cover one time why the far big pharma is so unpopular despite actually doing such good work in the world I mean obviously there's controversy and things that are less than ideal but overall they make products that save lives and they are hugely unpopular they make so products that save lives yeah, that is the bottom line. They make products that save lives. And, you know, if you work with people in the industry, they are the hardworking, conscientious people that are out there to make a difference. Um, and some of the smartest people. Pharma is one of the most complicated industries I've come across ever. Like, it's so complex. Science, regulation, commercial. Like, there's just so many difficult things to solve to make that work. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, this was brought to you by AstraZeneca. Uh, <laughs> that's a joke. Uh, but no, this one was good. We'll uh, record again soon in a week. <laughs> See you later, guys. We need more longevity in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, guys. See you later.